Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I no longer believe. I'm sorry, I just don't. I'm too old for this. I no longer believe that European soccer will overtake American football in this country. Okay, I said it out loud. Sorry. Oh, hi. It's Pete Pomisano here on the holiday edition of RLTP's Off-Road. We have a great one today. I am giving you the recorded session of Rajiv Joseph that was done a couple weeks ago live at the theater. You may recall that there was six feet of snow uh, at my house, and we were worried that we might not even pull off this entire interview and live with an audience recording of Rajiv Joseph. But after three days of isolation, the town finally plowed me out. We postponed and we postponed, and we finally did it on a Monday evening. I interviewed this very fascinating man. He is the playwright responsible for guards at the Taj, and I hope to God you got a chance to see it, because Man, that was a good show, a great production, great play, and something that I hope you had the chance to see because you won't see It's Like again for a while. We're going to waste no time today because Rajiv Joseph is that interesting, and what is that noise in the background? Who's there? Who's making that noise? It, I, uh, it, it must mean something. But, well, anyway... Here is Rajiv Joseph, the playwright of Guards at the Taj, here on RLTP's Off-Road. Well, thank you. I am... <laughs> For those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, why are you here? This is this year's American Theater Master here at RLTP. And uh, Rajiv Joseph, playwright, screenwriter, all-around good guy. We, unfortunately, we spent about an hour talking before this, and we have nothing left to say <laughs> to each other, uh, which is sad. But if you don't know, the, the show that's running here, of course, is Guards at the Taj. It is fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, please see it. Um, he's also the author of many other plays, which I won't get, go into now because eh, you don't really care to hear about all those. But I remember reading, I remember reading one of his plays. Somebody walked up to me and said, read this. And it was called Gruesome Playground Injuries. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and I read it. And then afterwards I needed therapy. <laughs> and, and I thought this, <laughs> it was so different and so unique as are all of his plays. Most famously, the Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which had a tremendous run on, on Broadway, starring Robin Williams as the tiger. So it, it, he's a multi-award winning playwright, and we're so honored to have him here. And I'm honored that he's taken the time to even bother talking to me. So I appreciate that. Rajiv Joseph, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> So, how does it feel to be an American, a, a, a 
playwright, a, a master, <laughs> or whatever it is. What are we calling it here? The American Theater Master. Yeah. You've joined the ranks of uh, Edward Albee and, and A.R. Gurney and uh, Donald Margulies. <laughs> What's that mean to you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a huge honor to be uh, to be chosen for something like this and to be welcomed by Road Less Traveled uh, Productions. I've, I've been here in the past. The city of Buffalo is very special to me. My brother lives here. He plays with the Buffalo Philharmonic. He and his family have been here for years, and so it's a real honor to be part of this theater in this in this capacity and to be here tonight in this weekend. Um, Braving the uh, the weather and, and uh, seeing how intrepid b- uh, Buffalo people are coming out tonight to this and coming to the show, and so I'm just extremely excited and happy to be here. Well, I, I'm thrilled that you were able to make it here. You you came from Cleveland, is that right? Well, I live in both Cleveland and New York. Okay. I grew up in Cleveland. I've been living in New York the last 20 years. Um, over the pandemic, I sort of expanded my housing situation, and I live. I have an apartment in Cleveland as well now, but uh, I flew in from New York on Friday. I was telling Rajiv, and Donna knows this about me, that I have this sort of an unnatural reverence for playwrights, mm-hmm. and it's it's almost embarrassing sometimes. But I, they fascinate me, and what goes into their, what what goes on in their heads, and how this even happened. But tell us a little bit about your start in Cleveland, Cleveland Heights. What what your interests were as a boy? How did you go down this road? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I I I never. I had no ambitions to be a playwright or even a writer as a child or even in high school. I you know. I, what, but I was, was there like a high school teacher who encouraged your writing? I'm always looking for that angle too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me, there was a teacher who helped you, who who inspired you, because then you went to school for writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I always was better at. English class, writing class, it always came more naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, sooner or later, I figured that was why you went into something because it just became, it came easier to you. Something you, know? you were good at. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but when I went to college, I just still didn't know what I wanted. And I, I remember that my sophomore year, I had to take, I really was looking at courses to take, and I saw this course for writing fiction. It was a creative writing class. And I thought, oh, I'd love to take that, but it was for majors only. And my friends were like, just declare a major and then you can just, you know, choose something else. So I went and I declared my major for creative writing thinking this is, I'm just going to last for like for the semester. And then I never left. I, I, I really then liked it. Then going to yeah. something real like tech. Yeah, or, exactly. Or yeah. Engineering or something, something where you could make a real, what, what about were your parents? Like were they... <laughs> You're doing what? You're getting a degree in what? No, they were very supportive. You know, they they just they just cared that I graduated. You know, they they were, <laughs> they were just happy I was in college, and so that was fine. And you know, I am still friends with a, a couple of my professors from. It was, I went to Miami University in, in Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio, and they had a really good program there for writing and for English. And I learned a lot, and uh, and it was you know, I, I thought I wanted to be a novelist. I still had no ambition to be a playwright. And being wanting to be a novelist, uh, sort of then kind of like like transformed into wanting to be a screenwriter, and then wanting to be a screenwriter led me to go to NYU Graduate School to be a screenwriter, which is the dramatic writing program. And when you're there, it's both screenwriting and playwriting, and you have to take both courses. And when I was there, and this is at, was at the age of about 28, was the first time I actually saw contemporary American theater. I hadn't seen that before. I had grown up going to musicals or seeing, you know, classics, but I had never seen works by living American playwrights on stage. And we would give in free tickets as students, and I started going to all the great, you know, off-Broadway theaters and seeing 
this new form of work that I was alien to me, and that was the work that really transformed me and made me think, oh, I don't want to be a screenwriter, I want to be a playwright, and that's, that's when that kind of took hold. Really? So it, it had nothing to do with that, with the creative writing degree at the time. You weren't even considering. No. You were going to write fiction, fictional. Yeah. Yep. It was, but it was, you know, it's, it's the idea of like, I know I'm a writer. I just don't know what kind of writer I am. And I think that's, I think it's a really important thing to remember, like for any kind of artistic endeavor or, you know, desire, you know, you, you, you can think you want to be one thing and that that can change and that, that, can, that can shift. And I still, and I do write screenplays and I do write for television, but I, but I realize that actually what I do best is write plays. And that's the thing I'm most comfortable doing. And that's the format. I found it eventually, luckily, that it was something that I could do well, you know, or at least passably well. And, and I really, you know, it's, it's, what's, it's what's most interesting to me, which is great because it's the least lucrative of all those things. <laughs> So it wasn't the money that drew you. <laughs> yeah, but but I'm, still, I'm still fascinated to find out what there was. Like, what clicked in your brain that said, oh, playwriting is different from this kind of writing, and this is what appeals to me about it? Is, is there something about it that appeals to you? Because absent all of the description mm-hmm. and all of the... Yeah as they used to say back in creative writing class, show, don't tell. Yeah. You're just, you're just show, don't telling dialogue. What was there about it that just was so appealing or seemed so natural to you? Because it's, it's not natural to me. Yeah, no, and it's not natural to a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> there's, there's actually very few playwrights. I mean, like when you consider like all the different ways you can be a writer, like there's very, very few playwrights or even people, or even the ones that do end up writing plays will quickly run off to other formats, you know, and <laughs> I think that there's a few things that appeal to me about it, but I think one is that I, I do love the live performance aspect of it, and I think it, that's what sets it apart from everything else. It's that people are sitting in a theater, people are part of that communion, you mm-hmm. know, part of the, the experience is having an audience. When you're in rehearsals and when you're in tech and you've been in this, in this rehearsal process for weeks, that last ingredient is the audience. You, you're not really doing the show until there's people in the seats. And that's something that's very special, you know, and it can't be replicated in TV and film. It's the one thing that TV and film don't have yeah. over theater. And so that, I think, is very special and very kind of, for me, very sacred. You know, it's, there's something almost religious about going to the theater and being part of a, of a great production and, and experiencing that. And then, you know, it's also when I was taking both courses for screenwriting and playwriting, there's always this thing with screenwriting, which is like, well, who's going to make this? Why are they going to make this? What's the commercial (laughs) angle of this? And with my playwriting classes, it was the opposite. It was like, no matter how bizarre your idea might be, people were like, that sounds fascinating. Write that. (laughs) You know, and there's like this kind of like can-do theatrical spirit that comes out of playwriting and theater, which is that like, let's just try it. You know, let's just, you know, who cares? It's it's not going to be lucrative either way, so you might as well just do it. You got nothing to lose. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you're telling me that while you're writing, and we'll get it, I want to get into your writing process at some point, but while you're writing, you're actually thinking in your head, there's another element of the audience and you're considering what an audience's reactions and or attitudes will be as you're writing. Is that going through your head? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I mean, that will go through my head, whether it's a film or a, or a play, really. I mean, but the give and take between an audience and, and, the, mm-hmm. and the actors. Yes, that's part. Yeah. And I think that, like, you know, there's 
the, the, the challenge is like you, you, so you have people in their seats and you know I, th- I think a teacher once told me like you have about 10 minutes where they're willing to give you anything <laughs> and then after 10 minutes they're going to start looking at their programs, looking at their watches, maybe getting up and leaving. You know, it's like that, you, so you have, to, you, have to, you have to catch them and you have to hold them. And when I go to plays and I, I, I see plays that I love, I feel like I've entered some kind of dream state where I haven't, I don't even realize that time is passing. And I, and I, I can almost gauge for me the quality of a production by like how little I'm, I'm, I realize I'm sitting there, do you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it's like any great story. If, if it wraps you up from the get-go, that's that's the sign of a good storyteller and good actors and a good production, you know. And I think that's to me. I'm always thinking about that when I'm writing. So you go to so you go to NYU mm-hmm. and get your master's in, in dramatic writing. Yeah. Right. And then what happens after that? Like, what's the next step after that? In case I want to <clears throat> start my life over again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, th- there's th- there's a lot of things that you can do. I I got I got lucky. Because I, you know, I, I, I caught a break. And so I had a teacher who took one of my plays that I wrote in grad school and submitted it to this incredible program called The Mentor Project at Cherry Lane Theater. Okay. And Cherry Lane is a historic theater in the West Village. It was started by the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. And it's this beautiful little theater. And they have this thing called The Mentor Project where they select three new plays and they, they assign a mentor, so an established playwright, Will, will mentor you for a year, and it'll culminate in a small kind of black box production of, of your play. So my mentor was this great playwright named Teresa Rebeck, and she helped me with my play, we talked about it, we met, and then I got a director, I got actors, and we put it on in this small black box, and it was, and it was great. And then the th- it was so great that the theater said, we want to do this play next year on our main stage. Whoa. And so they did it on their main stage the next year. And then when they did that there, another artistic director from another theater came and saw it, asked me if I had any other plays. I had just written one. I gave her that. And they did that at Second Stage Theater in New York. So it, it just little building blocks along the way. And so that's, that's kind of how it started for me. Did you actually teach for a short while? I taught at NYU for five years after graduate school. That was oh. sort of my job, but I wasn't teaching playwriting. Mm-hmm. I was teaching essay writing. I was teaching like basically writer's composition to freshmen. Oh. So um, that was a, it's a big program. NYU requires all, all their freshman students, no matter if they're in the business school or in the artistic school, to take this, this particular course called writing the essay. And I was an instructor for that for five years. And it was a perfect job for me because I had the time to continue my own writing, but I was also kind of engaged in, it was like a, almost a postgraduate degree. I really had to be engaged as an instructor and I had to read a lot. And then all the other instructors were people around my age who were also like, had ambitions to be creative writers, whether they were playwrights or, or novelists or poets. And we all kind of formed a small community of writers. And so it was a really important time for me. And I, what I tell people who want to, you know, who want to write, the, the most most important thing for me has been finding a community of other writers and sometimes what we would do is we would create little writers groups and we would all select a night we'd get together at somebody's apartment we order pizza <laughs> and we would each read like you know 10 15 minutes of whatever we were working on and everyone would talk about it and like that sort of engagement is so important because number 1 most importantly it gives you a deadline like there's nothing like like a deadline to get you writing. You know, if you don't have that, why ever write anything? You know, and then then you're getting feedback from people, and then you also have this sense of community that like makes it feel good. And writing can be very lonely, and so it fights against that. 
and it, it fills you, you know, with inspiration. So that's like, to me, that's the most important thing, active thing you can do besides write to help your writing. I've spoken to other playwrights, as I mentioned to you earlier, and they, they all talk about that. They all talk about this, this group sharing mm -hmm. and commenting and suggesting and, and, and the way that works to help, I guess, get their creative juices flowing yeah. and, and also the, the critique is helpful yeah. as well. I, I want to go back to the play that, that was so successful that you did, but first I have to ask you about this stint you did in Senegal mm -hmm. the, in the Peace Corps and when did that happen, why did that happen, and you had a successful play now, obviously it wasn't like a Broadway play, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden you're, you do, go do this stint in the Peace Corps. No. Peace Corps came before that. Okay. So I graduated from Miami University with my degree in creative writing. Ah. And then I thought, well, I need to have something to write about. And you know, I've been living in, in like suburban Ohio my whole <laughs> life. And so I, I had had three, three teachers in high school who had been in the Peace Corps. And my aunt was in the Peace Corps. She met her husband in the Peace Corps. So I, it, it was always a very kind of, it was on my radar from an early age. And I always thought I might want to do it. So I applied for the Peace Corps right out of college. I was accepted. I went to Senegal. Uh, my friend Jojo is here. She was in Senegal with me. Um, she's a, she lives here in Buffalo. And I was spent three and a half years there. And I, I lived in a very rural village for two of those years. And then I signed up for a third year to be a sort of, you know, Peace Corps volunteer leader. I was sort of like the, the point man for a region. And I lived in a house and I drove a truck and stuff like that. And it was an incredibly important experience for my life, really transformational. And I just did a lot of writing when I was there. Not, I didn't write anything, but I wrote a lot. <laughs> so I was, I basically I was writing in my journal and I was just recording my thoughts, my observations, and what that did is it, it gave me this routine, and it was the kind of thing where I couldn't even go to bed if I hadn't written that day. It set you up in a sort of a, a routine, of, a discipline of writing every day, yeah. which would come in handy, yeah. I would think, much later on. Yeah, and it becomes this, once it becomes that much of a routine and that much of like a, a part of your sort of daily existence, then you've, you've, you've gotten over one of, the, one of the, the crucial humps of like wanting to write, which is that like it's... You, you, I'm gonna write. That's not the problem. The problem is what am I going to write and how am I, I always compare it to like going to the gym. You know, it's like I'm not a person who has ever been good about going to the gym. And I always say I want to go to the gym. And sometimes I do for a little bit and then I don't. And then when I do want to go to the gym, I'm like, now where are my gym shoes? And where are my gym shorts? You know? And if you have to look around for those things before you go to the gym, you're not a very good going to the gym person, right? And it's like that with writing. It's like if you want to write, you're like, okay, where's my pen and notebook? Then you're not going to really, you, you haven't made it a habit yet. So I'm a gym rat for writing. But I'm not, I'm not a gym rat for going to the gym. Anybody here relate to that gym story? Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, completely. So you, so you developed this, this routine for writing. How has that evolved since then? Are you still an every day I get up and write? Or No. Um, but I, but I, you know, I, now it's, um, I call myself sort of a binge writer. You know? So I, I won't write for a few days or you know, even a week or so. But then I, I, I go back to it and I write a lot. But I'm always thinking. Like, and now I have all these projects. And so like, you enter different modes of how you write and why you're writing. You know? So like in my early days when I, like when I got out of graduate school, I had to write and I, I, I was desperate to like make something of myself. And I knew that like one of the things that anyone does if you send them a script 
is they say, this is great, not for us, what else do you have? And you have to have something else. You know, you have to have that second play, that mm. third play. Okay. And so that's what I started, I just wanted to create, churn out plays, and that, that served me. Now I'm at a different place in my career where I have certain commissions and I, the urgency isn't the same, but there is still an urgency, it's just a different type of urgency. So for example, you wrote for Nurse Jackie on, on Showtime for a while, yep. so you have do you divvy up your day and say, okay, well, uh, you know, from 9 to 10, I'm going to write something for Nurse Jackie. And then from 10 to 10, 15, I'm going to have, from 10 to 11, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. And then from 11 to 12, and then you, do you divvy up your day like that? Well, coffee comes first. Of, of course. <laughs> of course it does. Um, no, when you're writing for television, it's more of a regular job. So, like, I had to go to work. I had to sit in a writer's room with other writers all day. Uh-huh. And we would, so that, so, and that would really cut into my playwriting production because you said you have other projects that you're working on yeah now so do do, do you divvy up the day yeah i try to project yeah i try to it it is harder to do your playwriting if you're working in tv Mm -hmm. because tv can kind of take up all your time and then by the time you're done with it you're like exhausted so like you know i i was writing for a lot of tv over the pandemic because there wasn't any theater going on and so i kind of reinvigorated a sort of dormant tv career because i had left it behind i had done nurse jackie about 12 years ago Mm -hmm. and then i didn't really go back to tv because i i didn't like it as much and then i was desperate to get into it when the pandemic hit and we could do it all on zoom (laughs) so it was great i was doing i was in all these writers rooms on zoom and it was very convenient and I learned a lot and I enjoyed it, you know, mm-hmm. and so I'm still doing that. In fact, I'm going back into a writer's room in about three weeks and that'll last for about 12 weeks. So in that, it'll be like from one to seven every day, I'll be on Zoom. And that'll be, it, it's interesting, but it's also kind of exhausting. But and so very different from the solitary yes, very writing of, of playwriting. But it's always, the, the, so my life is never a routine, so I don't have a routine. You know, so I have to kind of pick my battles and figure out, okay, look at a calendar and be like, okay, this week I'm going to work on this play and this week I'm going to work on that play and, you know, kind of figure it out as I go along. Don't you have to be really crazy disciplined to not just say, oh, in another hour or so, I'll, maybe I'll sit down. Do you really have to force yourself to sit down yeah, at the computer? Yeah, 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 definitely. But then again, it's like, I, I try to make deadlines for myself, you know, ah. and so whether it's like an official deadline where I'm sending a play to a theater or like I'm working on a play right now, I have a director I'm working with. And so I just tell him, I'm like, hey, I'm going to send you this play by the end of the day on Friday. And now that I've said that, yes, I you, have to do it. You've made an artificial yeah. deadline for yeah, yourself. Yeah, exactly. And that works. <laughs> you know, you trick your brain into that. You know? Yes. Yeah. Plus, there's a, there's a feeling of... I. I always make lists. I'm constantly making yeah. lists because there's something so great about checking that. Absolutely. Check that, did that one, did that one. It's crossing out, crossing out. Yeah. And it's totally artificial. Yep. But there's a feeling of, of accomplishment that you've done something. You're doing something with your day. During yeah. the whole COVID thing, I had every day I had to have yep. a project. Even if it was something like paint the front door. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, for yeah. The All right, let's go back to, to the, the how you became so successful as a playwright because you get the first play and it's successful Mm -hmm. where do you go for how do you end up on broadway with robin williams and and how does that how does that happen i i i'm not going to have any kind of decent answer for that because i still don't know don't tell me you got Uh, lucky because (laughs) i mean it i in some ways i did like i can tell you this so when i was in graduate school i was in graduate school 2002 to 2004 Mm -hmm. in 2003 the United States invaded Iraq. And I was 
really, I was incredibly troubled by this. And I was like, I was really reading the newspaper, listening, watching the news, listening, to, just trying to wrap my head around this thing that I thought was, at the time, I thought this is really bad. I don't know enough about this, but I just, my, my, my impulse tell me this is, this is a disaster. And I really wanted, I, I, there was a part of me that wanted to write about it, but I was kind of s smart enough to know, like, I, don't, I can't write about this. Like, I don't know this. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a Rocky. I don't, like, I'm not in politics. Like, I'm just a schmo who has feelings about this politically as I go to graduate school in dramatic writing at NYU. Like, I'm living in this bubble. Mm -hmm. And then I found this little piece of, you know, this little article in the back of the paper on the New York Times, and it was about how bombs had blown open part of the Baghdad Zoo, and animals had escaped and been shot in the streets. I remember that, and, yes. And the zookeepers had stopped going to the zoo because it was too dangerous, and people were looting animals, and the U.S. troops put kind of sentries, guards, in the zoo. And these two guards were guarding the zoo one night, and one, and there was a, there was a Bengal tiger in a cage, and the soldier was trying to feed the tiger because he was starving, because no one had fed him. And the, the tiger bit the soldier's hand off. And the other soldier panicked and shot and killed the tiger. And that was the end of the story. It was like a paragraph. But it was absurd. It was like, what the hell? Like, this is such a crazy story. And I, and I wrote that scene as a 10-minute play in which the tiger is played by a person standing in a cage, not dressed like a tiger, and addressing the audience about how, how much life sucks to be a Bengal tiger in Baghdad. And then, meanwhile, as he's talking to the audience, the two soldiers are talking to each other. And so there's two stories kind of happening at once. And then when the, the tiger is shot and killed, his ghost steps out of the cage. And he looks at his body for the first time, doesn't even recognize himself. And then, and that's the end of the 10-minute play. And Did you see what I mean about these plays? <laughs> I mean, that, where does that, well... Finish. I'm sorry. Yeah. But where that idea comes from, we'll, we'll get into that. But it came from the New York Times. You know? <laughs> I know, but the New York Times didn't have the ghost of the yeah. tiger. Now looking back, oh, yeah, there's yeah. my body over there, yeah. and it looked yeah. pretty good. Well, it's like, you know, when a, when a character dies and you don't want to let go of that character yet, you can say, well, that was a ghost, you know? I mean, okay. Like, All right. Um, of necessity, we'll bring it back as a ghost. Yeah. Too good yeah. a character to lose. But the thing about that 10-minute play is that no one seemed to like it. <laughs> uh, I submitted to the NYU 10-Minute Play Festival. It didn't get in. I showed it to some friends. They were like, eh. And so I was like, I guess this sucks. And, but then, you know, a couple years passed, and every so often I'd pull it out of my drawer, and I'd read it. And I'd be like, I like this. I think this is cool. And then I took it to this great organization in New York that's now has now closed, but it's called the Lark Play Development Center. And I became, I became a real part of this community, and it was a place that develops plays. And I had it read by some actors there. And David Ives, who's sort of known as the master of the 10-minute play, was there that day as a moderator. And he said, I think this is a perfect 10-minute play, which I was like, oh my God, David Ives just told me that. That's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, well, I'm, I was thinking about expanding it into a full-length play. And he was like, I don't know if that's going to work. And then, and then <laughs> two weeks later, I brought the next scene, and then he was there again. He's like, I take back what I said. This definitely works. And, and so I developed the play through this organization, which was a huge boon, like to have an organization like this. And now it's closed. It, was a, it couldn't survive the pandemic. And it's a real loss in New York and for the American theater because a lot of playwrights like me used this organization to develop plays. To, it was a laboratory. And that sort of, that, that was a real you know, boon for me, which is why this play got written. I could go to this, this theater and 
and read new pages, you know, every few weeks and hear them out loud. And oftentimes they were terrible and I would take them back and I'd rewrite them. And the first draft of the play I wrote was just three characters. It was the two soldiers and the tiger. And my thesis advisor at NYU, who was also working at The Lark, Arthur Copet, who's a famous playwright, yes. who wrote Oh Dad, Poor Dad, and many other great plays, he told me, he's like, look, you've written this play about Iraq with no Iraqis in it. And I thought, oh yeah, that's weird. And, <laughs> but also what was interesting about that note to me was like, oh, he, it was sort of giving me permission to do so. Maybe I can write from an Iraqi perspective. And I started doing that. And then the play really expanded. And then I, you know, I, I interviewed Iraqi refugees. I interviewed Marines who had been in, in Iraq. And that helped solidify the play and give it some authenticity. And it got done in Los Angeles at the Kirk Douglas Theater, which is a small theater, but part of a larger group called Center Theater Group. And it, it was very well received there. And the, the critic there in Los Angeles, the LA Times, really loved it. And he gave me the best review I'll ever get in my life. And now here's where I got lucky, is that guy that year happened to be on the Pulitzer Committee. And so he put my play up to the top of the list on that. And so I didn't win it, but I was a finalist that next year. Right. And that's what got, that's what got my play and me like in a real place. Some of, attention. It got yeah, some attention. Yeah. yeah. And so they did it at their larger theater the next year at, in L.A. And the manager, the wife of the manager of Robin Williams happened to see it. And she told Robin, you would love this play because Robin had been to Iraq and Afghanistan several times on, on USO tours. Wow. And he had a real connection to veterans. And so his own interest in that conflict and the very chance that his manager's wife saw it led to us getting him the script for Broadway. Wow. Okay, so there was a little bit of luck involved. Yeah, there was a little bit of luck. Yeah, just some nice coincidences that, mm -hmm. that happened there. You know, you talk about not having any Iraqis in it and, and that you had an immediate interest and you knew that this invasion was a mistake. Does this have anything to do with the fact that you are, you're of mixed race. Yeah. Your mom was French and German. Yep. Your dad's from India. Yep. And you've talked about how this has affected you in terms of, well, not just your writing, but just in general. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, because I think, you know, in one way, growing up, I, I had a great childhood, right? But I, but I in, in, a, in that kind of weird identity way, like I, I didn't know where actually I stood. I wasn't like my mom's side of the family. I wasn't like my dad's side of the family. I was a different shade, <laughs> you know, in many ways. And the cool thing about that, I think, and then, and then spending, actually spending time in Senegal for three and a half years to the point where like I learned a local language and I, I felt part of a community there and I felt very at home in an entirely alien culture, also fed into this ability, for me at least, to think like, oh, I, I can shift between different groups here. And I can write from the perspective of an Iraqi. I can write from the perspective of a tiger. And that's, I think anyone can do that. But I think it, it takes a certain, you have to have the confidence to do it. And, and, like, and that's, that's what I think I gained from those things. Yeah. That you felt like you were... Not here, not here. Yeah. Really So nowhere. I could be anywhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that seems fair. Yeah. Were there a lot, for those of us who are failed writers, <laughs> were there a lot of other plays that were not as successful or, you know, things that have sort of 
ended up in the bottom drawer. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And yeah, yeah. and they because you've had many very very successful. And as I said, I think the Bengal that won the Obie Award as well. No, that I won the Obie Award twice for Guards of the Taj okay. and for a play called Describe the Night. Okay. Okay. So there must have been some other plays along there that that were less successful. Yeah, for sure. So, some of them that got produced and just never got produced again. And then some that I wrote and I didn't even get produced, that I, like, I, I just threw away. And in fact, this play, Guards of the Taj, I started writing it years ago and it was an entirely different play. And it had about 10 characters and it took place both in contemporary times and in ancient Mughal India. And it was a sprawling, huge mess of a play. And I wrote about 100 pages of it. And then I was like, this is terrible. I'm throwing this out. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I did. And I didn't think about it for a couple of years. And then I kept thinking about it. And I was like, you know, the only two interesting characters in that play were the two smallest ones. <laughs> I put two guards on either side of the stage who just stood there the whole time guarding. And in between scenes would kind of comment to each other about what was going on. And I was like, I like those guys. So I just took them and put them in the middle, got rid of everybody else, and made it this sort of like tighter one act. And that's what this play became. When, when it was this sprawling thing, in the back of your mind, were you thinking of it as a screenplay? No, I was thinking about it as a play. As a play, but yeah. just on a huge, yeah, a much like a larger large scale. scale. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So where does... All right, so the one, the one script you already talked about was came from a little article in the paper. Mm -hmm. And... Where does playwriting start with you? Does it start with characters? Does it start with a little a concept, an idea that you get from the newspaper? We know where this, well, we'll talk about this shortly, but does it often start with a little something like that or does it start with a theme that you want to express? You wanted to say something about the Iraqi war? Yeah, I mean, or it's, start with it's different for everything. I mean, that Bengal Tiger, that, that article was so haunting and weird that <laughs> I, I really, I felt opened up by it. And I felt, oh, so I have a, I'm, not, I'm not someone who can write about Iraq because I'm not, neither a Rocky nor a soldier. But I was like, I can write from the perspective of a tiger because no one can tell me that it's wrong, you know? And so it's a, it's a purely primal expression. But it's also, you know, I gave him a, a voice that was familiar to me, sort of like a crotchety old man. And that, that really worked. And, th and that, that loosened it up. That, that, and then you, you obviously know, oh, there's a tiger talking to you. So this is obviously not realism. And so... I think that like there's this interesting for me especially in that play like an, an intersection of politics and magic or it's a good, more of a ghost story than it is a war story mm -hmm. and when that's a ghost story you have a lot more leeway because the the, the rules become a little more just they go up and it's it, there ha doesn't have to be like the you're not you're not writing some kind of procedural but every play comes from a different place but they usually don't start with character they usually start with like an idea of like a something I, I, would, I would like to write about, and then, and then I kind of find the characters in it. When you say an idea, you don't mean a, a theme that you're trying to get across. Just an Not idea. A theme, no, yeah. Like with Guards of the Taj, I was always interested in, you know, this mythology about the Taj Mahal, about mm -hmm. how it was made, and who, in the, the, the king who had it made, Shah Jahan, and these legends that are associated with it, in which the masons and you know designers of the of the Taj had their hands chopped off by the king, which they, you know this is stories that were told to me as a youngster, and they just stayed with me. And I was like, well, I would love to write a play about that, but I don't know how to. Like, I got to figure out what that is. Mm -hmm. So like that original concept, which was like ten, 10 characters, like Shah Jahan the king was a big character in it, you know, and so was the architect Ustad Isa. But those characters now are just spoken of in my play. And so I had to find, I had to like, in a very circuitous way, find my way to what the story was going to be. 
Do you consider your play, I mean, I consider your plays sort of non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, was that a conscious choice on your part? Or were you just, where does that come from? The, the, the idea that I'm going to break these boundaries, I'm going to just, I'm going to have a, a tiger talking about his dead body. I'm going to, because think, those, those aren't things that you would normally see in a traditional play, it, was it a conscious effort on your part? I mean, when you to say just traditional play, when you when you say traditional play, I assume you mean is like a, kind of a a play based in naturalism, right? Like yeah, a, I guess. Right, like a, a kitchen. Scene and it has play. a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there's a, there's the you know the complication at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then there's the conflict in the middle, and then there's the outcome. Yeah, maybe. And I've written plays like that, right? Yes. But I have found that like when I like, and I think this is true for again whatever you might be writing, like. Whenever you sit down to say, okay, I'm going to write a play and here's what I think a play is, usually what you write is not going to be good because it's, it's not coming from a personal place. Mm-hmm. You know, same with like a novel or a musical or a screenplay. We all are first readers or viewers of something. And so we, we all have taste. You know, we all have opinions of like, I love that play. I love that movie. I love that novel. I could do that or I'd like to do that. And so then you, you do those things, but you're, you're writing from that that place of almost imitation. And when I wanted to be a fiction writer, I was in love with novelists. Mm-hmm. And I had all these novelists who I adored. And because of that, I think I was kind of hamstrung. Every because time you I, were emulating the well, Yeah, and every time I started writing, I was like, this isn't as good as them, you know? <laughs> but when I started writing plays, I, was, I knew so little. And I didn't have any theatrical heroes. Oh. And so I just felt kind of free to write. And I think that was a big key for me early on. Is that like I, I wasn't bound by any kind of hero worship, you know, to a certain playwright mm-hmm. yet, and so I, I think I, that that I just kind of wrote what what I what I wanted to see. I think that's a real I think that's key because you have to you have to basically write what you want to experience, not what you think people want. And there's never a point in there where you say, I better avoid that doesn't follow the rules. That doesn't I better avoid that. You just let it go. Well, yeah, but I I mean there is that like I like I. There are certain things that I know I need to avoid, mm-hmm. but I think th- those are things that are based in kind of lack of clarity or straining credulity. You know, like th- th- you're always you're always going back and being like, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. But that's the, that's the rewriting process, you know, mm-hmm. which is like almost all of writing. I see. I guess I guess we should talk about guards at the Taj. Mm-hmm. I, I want to do this without giving away too many spoilers, mm-hmm. although you've already given away one spoiler that. I wasn't going to mention. I was just simply going to mention that there, there, there is this mythology yep. around the Taj Mahal and around its construction. And you've already said that that became the basis of your your decision to to, to write this play. Right. Okay. And so I guess what I want to ask ask you about it is, you said you've heard the, this legend and you for your your whole life. About the construction of it and the, what happened to the, those who worked at it. At what point did you say to yourself, "I want to write a play about that"? I think right after grad school. I mean, I, I, when I was ten years old, I visited the Taj, Taj Mahal. It was my first time in India yeah. with my family, and we went to Agra and I saw the Taj. And my aunt told me this legend or all these different legends about Shah Jahan and the Taj, and they burned into my, you know, <laughs> in, yeah. into my imagination. And, well, and as then, a young boy, it would, it would certainly yeah, and stick in your mind. And I think that, like, as an adult, I, I was looking back, like, that would be a good, that's a, that's a really dynamic idea for a play, or a world, anyhow. 
And so I started, but again, it, it took me many, many years to focus, to find my way to what this play is. Mm -hmm. And with the play itself, and again, I'm, without giving away too many things, I find myself torn between the various, what I consider thematic elements of it mm -hmm. that have really less to do with that myth, mm -hmm. but, but the relationship between the two men yeah. and the relationship and how it alters mm -hmm. throughout the play. And does that grow organically from the writing as you're, as you're telling the story of these two men? Because it becomes about love and beauty mm -hmm. and was that in your mind or does that grow from? It grows. It grows. Yeah, it grows. I mean, I think first drafts of things are very poorly written and that you, you don't know that I don't know the characters yet. And then they and I slowly get ideas very slowly. And I was halfway through this play in, in the in the current iterations. I was, I was halfway through the, the, the version where we just have the two guys, Humayun and, and Bob were who are named after the first two Mughal emperors of India. Okay. Babur was the first one and Humayun is the second one. And I was in India visiting it again as an adult and there's a, there's a place in, in Delhi that is called Humayun's tomb, which is where that second Mughal emperor is buried. And it's this enormous kind of sandstone mausoleum that is a sort of like 100 years pre-Taj Mahal. But it's like you can see how how the Taj Mahal grew out of this kind of idea, but it's not nearly as stunning as the Taj. But it's right in the middle of Delhi, and it's like but it's walled in, and so it's actually this beautiful park. Mm -hmm. And if you go in the early morning, it's it's very beautiful. And I was sitting there with my notebook trying to write this play, and I was staring at the dome, and I kept on seeing these beautiful birds, these like green canaries or parrots flying everywhere, and then they were nesting in the cracks of this dome. But what it looked like is it looked like the dome was breathing birds because these birds would come in one way and then other birds would come out other. <laughs> and it looked like it was literally exhaling and inhaling birds. Wow. And I was so moved by that. And I just said, I wrote in my notebook, Humayun loves birds. And this is how the play begins. He hears a bird. Yes. And his, his whole concept of beauty is based on birds and on the natural world. Whereas Babur's concept of beauty is based on man-made beauty, the Taj, Interesting. and other things like yes. the Taj. And so that happened two years into writing this play, you know? Wow. And so like, that's where these things come from, like little, little pieces of inspiration, and then you're like, aha, I'm inspired by that. Humayun is inspired by that. And was, the, was it an intentional choice? Of course it was an intentional choice, but say something about the decision to make it, their language is very, it's almost modern, even though this takes place in the 1600s. Yeah. And that's obviously a conscious choice on your part. And when you see the play, if, when you see the play, there are anachronistic elements to yeah. it. That's a conscious choice, but why? Well, because, you know, there's this thing. Well, like, I have one of the stage directions in the very beginning is actors should not use a dialect, right? I don't right. want actors being up there putting on an Indian accent. And so why don't you want that? Because it's, it's inauthentic. It's, 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 it's not going to feel right. And so but you, that, you, you kind of scale down from that. And you're like, well, if this was an authentic show, they wouldn't be speaking English at all. They'd be speaking Urdu or Arabic, mm -hmm. right? And so they're not going to be speaking that, obviously. They're speaking English. And what these, this is a show about friendship. It's about two guys who are best friends. And so how do two guys who are best friends talk? They don't talk in kind of like arch 
sort of heightened the very language. stilted no, yeah no, right they call each other bro or in this case bai which is like the hindi word for bai and every so often there's a couple words in there that are from hindi or urdu or something but mostly it's in kind of casual american dialects because i can only write that and so i want these guys to feel like they're like casually in, interacting and I was mentioning to you earlier that like the thing I'm proudest of in my career is this play. And the reason I'm most proud of this play is that it's been translated into the most languages and been done in the most countries more than any other play of mine. And I think that's because the themes of the play and the ability to do the play kind of crosses over into cultures. Whereas like a play like Bengal Tiger doesn't necessarily. Like that has, that's about American soldiers in Iraq. You can't just put other soldiers in Iraq. I got you. Right? But like this one has this sort of universality to it. And so, you know, this play has been done in Japan, in South Korea, in India, in Iran, in Brazil, in London, and Spain. But in, and, and in each case, the translation represents the, the standing culture that it's being performed in. Yes. Yes. But it's done in like, so I went and saw it in Japan. I went and saw it in Korea. Saw it in languages I don't understand. Right. But I, I under, it's, like, it's like being in a dream. You, you don't understand what they're saying, but you know everything they're saying. Yes, yes. And, and was this a, a dictate of yours that you said, when this play is translated, make sure you maintain this sort of friendly rapport that is very naturalistic and not the least bit... Th these, these aren't two guards who are speaking very stilted language. No. It's very conversational. It's mm -hmm. very... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I and that and any good translator is going to pick up on that. Yeah. And you know that's the other thing is like I don't necessarily know how the translations are. Right. Right. But I can tell when I watch the play. Yeah. Oh, know? Right. Or how the comedy translates. Yes. Exactly. Because there's a lot. That's the other thing that's amazing about this play is because it's got it's so funny in some times and so horrific at other moments and so loving at other moments and it's just so back and forth. But does that translate into other languages? Apparently it does. It does, yeah. Apparently it does. Yeah. And, and again, that was a choice to mix and match all of these, these things into this play to get across your point that I don't think we can, <laughs> I don't think we can talk ab about it at this point. I, I was talking, to, I don't want this to go too long, and I want people to be able to have an opportunity to ask questions. I was talking to you earlier before the audience came in, and I was asking you about... How do you feel about directors and actors sort of taking some liberties with your writing? <laughs> well, they, they, they can't take liberties with the words, but they can take liberties with the way that the, 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 the artistic angle of the, of the production, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the great things about being a playwright is that nobody's allowed to change your words. Whereas if you're a screenwriter or a television writer, your boss changes your words all the time. The studio changes the words. They can fire you and hire a different writer to write, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but, but theater, that's not the case. Uh, that's what we kind of exchange for lack of, you know, remuneration. It's like we own our, we own our work. It says right there in the front of the script, do yeah. not change a word of this. You can't change a word of it. So what's, but what's fascinating about theater is that you cannot change a word, and yet productions can vary in such enormously dramatic ways and that's what I love about coming to see my plays in different places is like I'm always surprised mm -hmm. and so I like that aspect of it I like I like when people take big big chances mm -hmm. and, and and bold you know decisions in, in in producing plays and I think you mentioned earlier that you had you had seen a play or working on a play one time and things that's not what I meant that's not what my intention was and then you blame yourself 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, especially if it's like the first time a play is being done and I'm part of the whole process. You know, I'm part of the audition process. I'm part of the casting. I'm part of like the conversations with the designers and the director and the, and the theater. And so I'm like, I have my, my finger in every pie and still sometimes the play doesn't work out to my liking. And sometimes I have a reason. I'm like, oh, I know why, because that was miscast. But sometimes <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think it's my fault because if, if everything went according to plan and it's still not working, it must mean that the, the, the text is wrong. And I, I go back and rewrite a lot. Like, I mean, my play Describe the Night has been produced, you know, about seven times in seven different cities and ne never has the script been the same. And um, it's, a, it's a tough one, you know, but I, I, I let myself do that. I mean, I, I feel like it's still a, like a living document. I, I, can, I can mess around with it if I want. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Mm -hmm. I want to offer the opportunity for the audience to ask any questions that, th that they might have. And the way it'll work is just raise your hand and say it and I'll... I'll repeat it so that everybody can hear it because we don't have a pass around microphone or just speak up and <laughs> if you have any questions and we'll see uh, where this goes. Are there any questions? Yes, Monish. I've got a couple questions, Rajiv. Um, first, thanks for making the Buffalo. Mm -hmm. uh, first question is like, uh, Guards of Taj, you said it was produced in India. How was it received there? Was that, I mean, because, you know, like, Taj is so... Yeah, I, I think it, I didn't get the chance to go to India to see that production. In India, but I, from what I, and I, I had a good relationship with the, the director, and he said it went great, you know, and they did it a couple times. Was it in Hindi? Uh, no, it was in English. It was in English. It was in English. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about India is that theater is not huge there. You know, it's it's a film culture like 100. percent mm. And theater is one of these weird things that it's it's expensive, you know, and so it's like you have to, you have to have money to make it, you have to have money to go to it, and it's and I think that's like. It's, if it's not part of the culture, it's hard to get people in those seats, you know. In South Korea, it's very interesting that they have this, this whole section of town where any building that was built got a huge tax credit if they built a theater in the building. And so there's like a hundred theaters in this neighborhood. And they're all like the size of this. And they put on contemporary plays from all over the world. And the, the makeup of the theater-going populace are all young women between the ages of like 19 and 25. And that's like entire audience is like that. And they, they become groupies. They'll, they'll come and see the play like 30 times. And, and they send gifts to the actors. And I, they did guards there and like these actors were getting like cases of ice cream, you know? <laughs> and it was like, what is going on? And, and I thought, this is amazing. Like what a, what a youthful, vibrant theater. And, they, and the people that were like, it's great, but then they get married and they stop going to the theater. And there, there's no older audience, and older audience is what you want because they're the ones who have money and give money to the theaters. You know? And so it's like this little teeny bopper, like you know, Britney Spears version of theater that happens in South Korea is really exciting and cool, but it's kind of non-sustainable. And so like theater still hasn't, like at least in these theaters, hasn't evolved into like this sort of like ongoing theater-going community. So it's just interesting, every culture. Yes, sir. Doug. What's next? You've got King James, what's after that? Well, I have my, my play King James started, it was in Chicago this past year, and then at Los Angeles is coming to New York in the spring, in May, to Manhattan Theater Club. And then I'm working on a couple of new plays, you know. Um, one of the plays I'm working on is, uh, is a commission with Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and that is a play, it's a nativity play, it's a Christmas play, and um, it's sort of like a Christmas pageant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I realized that, like, my first theater experience of my entire life was being in a Christmas pageant, Christmas pageant you know, sure. being an angel. And, uh, and so I've been thinking about that a lot and thinking about 
what would it mean to make a sort of secular nativity play? Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I was the third tree from the, from the <laughs> yeah. left. Right. Any other questions? Because my question was going to be, what's, what's next? Now I forget what I talked about with you or what we talked about earlier. Did you say you would just come from seeing a show in Toronto and a show in Cleveland? You've seen three, yeah. and tonight you're seeing yeah, this I'm, one. Yeah, I'm on this very impromptu, like it wasn't planned this way, but this three-week tour of seeing, I went to Toronto to see Bengal Tiger. It was there at this theater called the Crows Theater. And um, it was my parents' idea. Like they were like, it was my dad's birthday, and they were like, we're going to drive up to Toronto and see your play. You should meet us there. And so <laughs> I did. And I have a buddy that lives in Toronto, and he came with us, and I told them that that was coming, and the cast was so excited. It was a gorgeous, incredible production there. And then the next week, I happened to be back in Cleveland, where this small theater that I've done, that has done a lot of my plays, did describe the night. And then I'm here to see guards. So it's like, you know, every weekend I've been seeing a different play of mine. This doesn't happen all the time. I don't, I don't follow my plays around like that. But, um, <laughs> but this just, it worked out like this. And so it, I'm really lucky. Well, that's very cool. The long-term plans, do, do you often have like more than two plays in? Yeah, no, I, I work on a lot of plays at once. Do you? And they're in like, they're in different stages of development. Okay. You know, so I have a couple other plays that are like, like more like sketches right now but that hopefully they'll develop. So know. two is a normal number for you, and then a couple others just sort of mm-hmm. percolating over here on the side? Yeah, little ideas here and there. Some, some, you know, like I, have, I have a lot of ideas, and then not all, not all of them get even get to the place where I start writing them. Are you one of these guys who has a whole bunch of matchbooks and things with little <laughs> notes written on them? Uh, I do. I have a lot of Write a story about a tiger. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. I do. I, I have a lot of note, like a little, I have a lot of notebooks. I'm a, I have a fetish with notebooks and I, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I carry them all over the place and I, I have big ones and small ones and pocket ones and I always like to have a pen and paper with me wherever I go. Is there uh, any TV work or screen work that we should know about before we say goodbye? I wrote for three television shows over the pandemic, and they're all new shows, so no one would know of them yet, but they're all coming out soon. One of them actually premieres on Hulu on Tuesday, and that's called Welcome to Chippendales, and it's a um, limited series starring Kumail Nanjiani. I saw the ad for that. Yeah, yes. and um, it's about the Indian man, Soman Banerjee, who started the Chippendale Dancing Group in Los Angeles back in the 1980s. An Indian man who started the Chippendale dancing troupe. Yes. And, and I understand, uh, I'm listening to a podcast with Kumail <clears throat> right now. Oh, really? And he says he had to gain weight for the part. Well, yeah, because he was all man, jacked up for his Marvel comic. Yes, you know, thing, but the you know. man who, who started the whole Chippendale is not... A, he wasn't a, one of the dancers. A beautiful specimen. No, no, he was no, not one of the no. dancers. He was, he was a businessman. And it's, it's a fascinating, unexpected story that takes a real dark turn. Very cool. Well, oh, yes, sir. Yes, I, I would like to know about the arch coup process and like, what happened with arch <laughs> Yeah, because uh, that was my first encounter with uh, Road Less Travel Productions. Was uh, I was writing my play Archduke, which is about it's a story about the three men who carried out the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, mm-hmm. the event that started the First World War, and I threw a invitation from Scott Barron here at Roadless Traveled. I came out here and did a, a whole week-long workshop of that play before it had its world premiere in Los Angeles in, I want to say, 2017. And the experience here at Roadless Travel was great because it, it, I, I got to hear the play. I got to talk with a lot of the great people here, the actors, the dramaturg, and Scott, and then 
I rewrote it a ton here, and we did a reading at Roadless Traveled, and it was incredible. I mean, that that's the sort of it's that sort of uh, support that I think really like allows plays to grow and to grow into what would be what we call the final draft. Okay. And uh, it, it was done in Los Angeles. It was done about a year and a half later in in Palo Alto, and it hasn't been done since. And um, I think. I hope it gets done again. Um, it's one of those plays that I think I think it's a pretty good play, but it hasn't taken off. It hasn't found an audience. It mm-hmm. hasn't been done in New York yet, and sometimes that just happens. Sometimes like plays just kind of die on the vine or are put away for a while. I mean, Tracy Letts had a play in New York right before the pandemic that he wrote 15 years ago, and and it just never been done in New York. And I'm like, that's Tracy Letts. Like he's like the most famous playwright in the country, and like he can't get his play done in New York for 15 years. So it just goes to show that like New York theaters and theaters everywhere are very they're just persnickety, and they want the newest thing. They don't want the cool play you wrote five years ago, you know. And so King James is you know going to have this production in New York, and I think King James is, is a it's it's sort of like Guards of the Taj and it's sort of not. It's 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 a two-hander like Guards of the Taj. It's about male friendship like Guards of the Taj, but the conceit of that play is it's about two guys from Cleveland over 15 years of their life and how their friendship grows and shrinks based on their competing opinions of LeBron James. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> Rajiv, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks Thank so you, much Peter. for doing this. Thank you all Thank for, you being all here for coming. Yeah. We appreciate it. No, 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 of course this has nothing to do with the credibility of Santa or the Easter Bunny or, or, or even the Tooth Fairy. It's just that European football... Oh, never mind. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that Rajiv Joseph interview. It was a lot of fun, and what an interesting guy he is. Listen, we're going to take some time off. We'll be back after the holidays in January with more interesting interviews and more fascinating people. In the meantime, I hope you have a great holiday season, whether it's Christmas or Kwanzaa or Hanukkah or Festivus or whatever it is. I hope you enjoy it, and I wish you all the very best in the new year from RLTP and Off-Road with me, Pete Palmisano. (laughs) 